0: Says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is so great. Your word is so great that every time that we read it and every time that we search it, we can find new and wonderful mysteries in it. We thank you that it is both theological, engaging us in the mind, and emotional, engaging us in the heart, and super practical, engaging us in day-to-day life. So Father, right now I pray for these people. I pray that as they hear the word preached to them, that they would be changed, the sin that entangles them would, would loosen its grasp. That the, that the despair that seeks to, to pull them down would be replaced by the joy that comes in the gospel. I pray that for these people. And I pray against any wayward thought that would keep them from coming to the conclusion that you are good and that you are taking care of them. It's in the name of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. So the psalm begins with the question, "O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill?" To put it another way, who may be where God is?" You know, it's not often that I get to preach the most relevant subject that I get to preach. Because everyone in this room longs to be in the presence of God. On some level, you you wouldn't be here if you didn't. You, like David, longs to dwell with the Lord. I mean, David was practically obsessed with it. In Psalm 24, he says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? In Psalm 42 he says, "What shall I come when shall I come and appear before God?" In Psalm 61 he says, "I long to dwell in God's tent forever." Who may be where God is? It is the question. It's the question of all religions. I mean, dudes come down off of mountaintops and and, and stumble out of the jungle claiming to have the answer to this question, who may be with God? It's a question worth asking because to be in God's presence is to experience unbroken ecstasy. As it says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the paths of life. This is David talking to God. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a relevant question. To be in the presence of God is to know and to experience true and lasting and unbroken happiness. It's Latin, uh, the early church, the early Latin church said it this way. They used the term visio beautifica, the beatific vision. And they described it as an unbroken connection between you and God, in which you see God face to face. You stare at the source of all happiness, unbroken, forever. This is the height of human experience. More than money, more than a spouse, more than sex, more than fame, more than all the pleasures of the world combined. To be in God's presence is to know joy. And joy uninterrupted. You want to be there. You long to be there. You may not think about God all the time, but all your actions point to the fact that you want more. God is where there is no need for more because he is enough. Heaven is where the search for happiness ends. So David poses a relevant question. Who may dwell with God? But you know, as I was reading the psalm and as I was wrestling through it, the first line does give me some hope, but it also filled me with a sense of, of uneasiness. Who shall dwell on God's holy hill? I felt uneasy that the question even needed to be asked. I felt uneasy that you couldn't even take it for granted that you could be with God. For me, the question, who shall dwell on God's holy hill, carries with it an ominous tone, a a, a gloomy undercurrent. I feel like David could, could have just as well have said, who dares to enter God's presence? The presence of this holy God, this, this one who told Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Who dares to enter into God's presence? You know, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, Um, They're some of the most well-read parts of the Bible, because they're at the very beginning, but if you read those two chapters of the Bible, you'll you'll see that God and man experienced this fellowship, this connection. And then by chapter 3, man had rebelled against God, and the connection was broken. And ever since then, God has not been an accessible God. He's been a distant God. We have become so unlike God in our sin that His presence has been far removed from us. Think about some of these stories that have been passed down to us through His Word that, that that show the separation between us and God. Think about the Garden of Eden, right? So they had perfect fellowship, Adam and Eve with God, perfect fellowship, and then they rebelled against him, and what happened? Banished. Right? Just like that. And as they're leaving the garden and they turn around, what do they see? A cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the presence of God. It was a visual representation of this thing that they had lost. Think about God calling Moses out of the burning bush. What stood between Moses and God? Fire. Fire separated the presence of God from Moses. Think about Mount Sinai. After God led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and he leads them into the wilderness and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, he tells Moses to come up on a mountain and this is what he says to Moses, the the representative of the people. He tells Moses regarding this mountain, you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, saying take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. How about a couple more? Think about the temple that Solomon built for God, right? This place where God was going to manifest his presence among the people of Israel. God gave Solomon the specifications for how he wanted built and in the center of the temple was this room, right, called the Holy of Holies. And only one man out of all the people, the high priest, was able to enter into that room and and only once per year... Anyone else who entered the room was put to death. So this place where God manifested his presence among the people of Israel, there was a separation. And lastly, think of heaven. This, this place or this reality where God permanently dwells. You can't get there. You can't get on a plane and get there. You can't walk there. It is separated from you. Who among you sitting here dares to enter into God's presence? If you dare, the psalm tells you what you must do. The psalm tells you the way to heaven. So listen carefully. You must walk blamelessly. You not only must say truth, but you must only think what is true. You must never talk falsely about anyone. You must never do any evil to your neighbor. You must never take up a reproach against your friend. You must despise those who are vile. You must always honor those who fear the Lord. You must keep your promises no matter how much they hurt. You must not lend your money out at interest and you cannot take any bribes. Everything you do must be completely honest through and through. If you do these things, you may dwell in the presence of God. You see, if, if God's presence is the thing that you're trying to get to, which I think that most people um, in the world are, are, are in some way or form trying to get into God's presence, if, if that's the person whose presence you're trying to get into, doesn't it make sense that, that his criteria is the, the criteria by which you can come to him? He's the one who sets the standard. He's the one who sets the meeting place. It makes sense that it comes from His Word. And we know that our standards for what makes a good person, our standards for which we think would or should allow us into the presence of God, they naturally fall short of a perfectly just and holy God. It's just natural. We are limited. God is limitless. We will never measure up. Only holy people enter the presence of a holy God. But if you do these things, you have a right to stand before God and enjoy His presence. But in truth, in speaking this psalm over to you, I spoke death to you. I spoke death to you because there is no way that you can do all these things. You may be able to do all of these things some of the time, but you cannot do all of these things all of the time. And so where does that leave you? Standing at a distance from God, looking up at the place where he dwells, and wondering how to get there. That is the logical conclusion of this psalm. Enter Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, sent to be the Savior of the world. Jesus succeeded in every part of life where we failed. He lived out these verses to the perfect degree. Jesus walked blamelessly. He always did what was right. And he always spoke the truth from his heart. The Gospels are a testament that Jesus always did right. And Peter, a a man who spent more time with Jesus than probably anybody else, this is what he said about him. He says, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never did any evil to his neighbor, He never took up a reproach against his friend. In fact, he said there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus paid no attention when people tried to stop his mission and he honored those who feared God. Jesus resisted self-interest unto death. Jesus is the perfect representation of righteousness both inwardly and inwardly and outwardly. He always thought what was true. He always thought what was right. He always followed God's commands perfectly. Jesus accomplished all that God set for him to do by dying on the cross to save sinners. And after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. Jesus dared to ascend God's holy hill. The place where all of us failed, all of us tried to climb that hill, but it was too steep. But Jesus was able to ascend the hill. The scripture says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus bridges the gap between verse 1 of this psalm and verses 2 through 5. Who may be in God's presence? The gospel answers that question. And we, the church, exist to proclaim this gospel to all the world. This gospel that, that God created in the world, everything that was good and perfect. And we, as humans, rebelled against his perfect authority and instantly we were separated from God. And instantly we invited death to, to reign over us and to enslave us in the world. But God knew that we would fall And so he had a plan from the beginning of time to send a Savior, a Messiah, who would come and allow people back into the kingdom of God. Jesus' death on the cross paid your penalty for the sins that you have committed, for the things that you have done that have offended this holy God who demands this righteous requirement of the law. Jesus' death absorbed the wrath that was meant for us. And God was so pleased with Jesus' sacrifice that he raised him from the dead and now Jesus stands offering the world re-entry into the kingdom of God. And all we have to do is turn from our rebellion and make Jesus our Savior. You say, what does it have to do with ascending God's hill? What does it have to do with dwelling with God? The goal of the gospel is this. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The goal of the gospel is for you to return into the presence and the glory of God. Gospel is a gift. It is an amazing gift, but it is a gift that must be received personally. You cannot receive the gift by coming to church. you cannot receive the gift by proxy through somebody else. You must receive the gift individually. to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's my plea. If there's anyone in here, anyone among us who has not, who who doesn't understand the phrase, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, I plead with you. Come to him. If you're not sure if you're going to enter into the presence of God, come see me after the service. This is what the church is about. Defeating death through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room who believes in Jesus can testify that the answer is not out there. We who believe in Jesus in this room testify that the answer is Jesus Christ. That's why we come back week after week after week because Jesus is the one who satisfies us. All of us in here have tried the things out there, have tried the philosophies out there, have tried the pleasures out there, and we have found them lacking. Christ is the all-sufficient one. He is the well that never runs dry. So that's my plea, to believe in the gospel, to experience the joy that, that your heart longs for, and to be reconciled to the God that you rebelled against. You have believed in Jesus. Yes, Jesus' presence and his death and resurrection guarantees you a spot before God. But do not forget that those who follow Jesus will naturally become like Jesus. Once you're living in the peace of the gospel, the, 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 the verses in this psalm are no longer a ladder to God. They are representative. They are a picture of what it looks like to dwell with God. These are things that happen and they they flow out of our relationship with Jesus as he changes us. The gospel is for you too, believer. You don't outgrow the gospel. It's not something that jumpstarts your Christian life and then you go on and do something else. The gospel is the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. That Jesus died for you and makes you right before God. Everything else flows from that. Everything else. Jesus' death and resurrection extend into every area of your life. And the psalm shows us that your worship to God is is not disconnected from your interaction and your relationship with other people. God is not about creating ritualizers who profess God on Sunday and live for themselves during the week. Worship does not end at noon today. Worship is from Sunday to Sunday. And so this psalm gives us a picture, a practical picture of what it looks like to to live with Jesus and to follow Jesus and to to look like him. It speaks to the people in all walks of life. It speaks to you employees. You work for someone else? Put in eight hours of work for eight hours of pay. The psalm is for you, mechanics. Speak truth in your heart. Don't overcharge for your services. The gospel speaks to you, salesmen. Don't lie about your product or make it seem better than it really is. It speaks to you, counselors and prayer warriors. People give you confidential information. Don't slander them by telling it to other people. See, the gospel conforms us to be like Jesus. And this psalm is the practical outworking of what that looks like. The church is not a collection of, of casual worshipers. It is a counter-movement you see, the world is trying to make you a puppet, but Jesus wants to make you children of the king. We look different. We act different. We have different values. We have different characteristics than the world. This is what Jesus is calling us into. This is what it means to be a counter-movement under Jesus. So to sum it up, We all want to be with God. We want to dwell in his presence forever. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want sorrow. We don't want to experience this emotion called longing. We want to be completely satisfied. But our sin, the very thing that we thought would give us that satisfaction, actually kept us from God. And Jesus came into the world... To reconnect us to Him. And now our lives look different when we're walking with Christ and we're being changed by Him and we're studying Him in His Word. Do not leave today unchanged. Let the Psalm sing in your heart this week, read it this week, live it this week. Don't just go out and just do your own thing. Don't be a casual worshiper. Let me pray for you that 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 would be the case this week. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word shapes us and it guides us. Lord, I thank you for your son. Without Jesus, we would all be lost. Without Jesus, none of us would probably even know each other. But instead, through Jesus, we are being collected into a people. A people who represent you in the world. A people who are changed. A people who are a counter-movement. Father, if there is any person, in this room who is unsure about their status with you. Father, I don't know, you know, they know. Father, I pray that you would move in their heart, I beg that you would move in their heart, that they may see the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Father, don't let them leave here unchanged. May they be be bold enough to come and to to ask about this gospel, to to ask about this Jesus, this man, this, this son of God who changed the world. Father, we love you. We honor you, and as we transition into a time of communion, Lord, we just remember what you have done. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.